This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to This Week. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal land. Mourners have continued to gather across the globe to remember Queen Elizabeth II. And it hits home, the gravity yeah. of it, the reality of it. And yeah, it's hard not to feel emotional, right? Yeah. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. Like, I was literally here for the day. We decided to walk up to kind of pay our respects because obviously this is such a momentous moment. And um, yeah, it's utterly heartbreaking. I've never known anyone else to be the Queen and I'm 55. When Princess Diana died, it was a... Uh, That was bad enough, so I should imagine it's going to be twice as bad as that, really. King Charles III says this is a moment of great sadness, and attention is now turning to how things might change under the new monarch. We'll look at that a little later, but first... Publish and proclaim that the high and mighty princess Elizabeth Alexandra Mary is now, by the death of our late sovereign of happy memory become Queen Elizabeth II. The Queen has been remembered as our longest-serving monarch. When she came to the throne, Winston Churchill and Robert Menzies were Prime Ministers. Jenny Hocking is a political scientist at Monash University and author of The Palace Letters. It's remarkable when you look at the period of time in which she was queen and really coming in at a period of some instability in terms of the post-war period and and the monarchy itself had been through some turbulence in the decades before. And yet what, what transpired was a period of great unity both within the Commonwealth and within the monarchy despite the difficulties more recently within the family, the royal family. So uh, I think she'll be remembered in as a very successful monarch, as one that held the family together, the monarchy together, and the Commonwealth. Yes, and yet for someone so famous all over the world, we really knew very little about who she really was. And, and what we did know, I guess, was, was kind of carefully stage-managed by the palace. So what do you think we can make of her reign with that in mind? Well, it's one where, yes, that's absolutely right, what you say. There's this very strange beast that is the uh, the monarchy, isn't it? It's both a, a family and a, and an institution of governance. And those two things are not always in happy unison, as we've seen, I think, in, in recent years. And there's been certain dysfunctions she's had to preside over there within a family setting um, that have had implications, of course, for, for the monarchy. But... Um, Nevertheless, I think I think that's been one of her great strengths is that she has maintained that continuity. But but yes, you're right. We don't know her on an individual level. I think because she's interpreted her her role necessarily as an institutional one, and that's where her first priority has been. I think to keep the monarchy together, to keep it functioning um, smoothly, and and we've become very used to that sort of comfort of her familiarity as our head of state. And things will be vastly different now that that changes and we come, of course, to King Charles III. But it does mean that we don't know a great deal about her. And the other reason is, of course, that there is a very significant thing called royal secrecy. I mean, this is something I'm very personally familiar with, having taken a court case to have access to 
correspondence mm. um, between the Governor-General and the Queen, and it's held very dearly and very closely. You know, they have royal archives in in England that retain a very tight hold over what material gets out in the public and what doesn't, and there's been a tendency for the colonial, former colonial nations to follow that type of control over royal matters. So it is a carefully curated image, but it's one they've managed very well. I think the balance between what we know of the Queen Uh, in an image sense, and what is kept secret has nevertheless made people feel that they know the Queen. I mean, the number of people who spoke about how personally they felt they knew the Queen simply from seeing her at various functions when, of course, they didn't know her at all is, is really quite interesting. It's an interesting phenomenon. Yes, and now we have the reign of King Charles III, someone who has known all his life that he would be king. It's taken more than 70 years for that to happen. How do you think he will act in that role? Well, he's had a very, very long time to prepare for that, hasn't he? And Hmm. I I think as far as that is uh, governed by protocol and so much of the royal activities, of course, are and very much managed all around him, uh, he will do entirely what is expected of him and he will follow as the Queen did in what is required of the monarch. But I think there is a very important difference and it's one that we need to be, I think, if not concerned about, then certainly aware of. And that is that he's already shown himself to be somebody who is prepared to speak publicly on political matters that many people would argue a constitutional monarch ought not to do. And there have been concerns, particularly in the UK and including from conservative commentators, that Charles has been far too overt in his political what's been called meddling, um, that he has played a role in political matters that a constitutional monarch absolutely cannot do. I mean, the essence of a constitutional monarch monarchy is that the constitutional monarch is politically neutral because, yeah. of course, they have to serve governments of all persuasions. They have to leave the political space for elected individuals and not for the unelected, dynastically determined Yeah, just remind um, us of, of a few of the more controversial things that he's waded into in terms of politics? Well, probably the major one was what was known as the the spider letters, where the Guardian took a series of FOI cases that took over a decade to actually succeed um, gaining access to Prince Charles's letters to members of the Blair government, including Prime Minister Blair himself. And these were very strongly worded letters urging particular policy positions on matters of uh, moment to, to Prince Charles. Well, I don't know if you've got a moment just to, to give us a very quick update. Are these letters coming in thick and fast? Yeah, they are. As I say, 27 to go through. Prince Charles certainly illustrating him being tapped into the uh, information that is coming out of government and also expressing to a degree a view, not necessarily hugely controversial or necessarily hugely groundbreaking, but expressing a view nonetheless. And in his own words, we are seeing for the first time just what he has been saying to various government departments. That's utterly um, in breach of that requirement of political neutrality. It's intervening in the political process most directly, directly into the policy process. And I think there was a great deal of consternation when those letters were revealed. Um, There's been other forays um, less directly to government and more, more towards matters of concern to him, such as architectural matters, Uh, conservation matters. Mm. Um, uh, But these are things, regardless of what 
our view is of the things he is speaking on, uh, that a constitutional monarch ought not to speak on political matters. It's simply a reality of the of, of the nature of that, if you like, contradiction at the heart of a Westminster system where we have an elected government operating through the parliament, but we have an unelected dynastic monarchy at the head of state. Um, to bring those things two together, those two things together, the constitutional monarch remains neutral. So that is something Charles has been chastised over before, and we need to make sure that he uh, respects the bounds of a constitutional monarch now that he is our king. Do you think he'll bring some of those firmly held positions on things like climate change and the like into the role as a kind of legacy in any way that could cause controversy? Uh, I do think it would cause controversy for the mere fact of doing it. I mean, it's an interesting question about the role of a constitutional monarch in a contemporary setting. You know, we do have such strong store now for, for, for the sort of spirit of democracy, the notions of accountability and transparency and so on, which are absolutely antithetical to a monarchy that is predetermined by birthright and so on, in which those attributes are not at all significant. And so it, it is in many ways a conflictual relationship and it's one that has to be dealt with extremely carefully. I think the expectation is, and Charles himself has said this, he has said that he will not continue with political commentary and political interventions once he is king. He has said previously, I know what the bounds are for a constitutional monarch. The idea somehow that I'm going to go on exactly the same way if I have to succeed is complete nonsense because the two, the two situations are completely different. And I think it's vital to remember there's only room for one sovereign at a time, not two. So you can't be the same as the sovereign if you're the Prince of Wales or the heir. So I think the expectation is that he will have to change some of those habits of a lifetime and whether he can, I think, will actually be very important. I think at its fundamental base, I think that does stretch the bounds of what a constitutional monarch can can successfully do. It enters into a political space that might bring them into disagreement with governments in the future. And that's simply something I think they ought not to be treading on. It, mm. it, it is a very important distinction between a, an elected political office and an unelected one. And even though, you know, there may be a certain interest in a modernisation, I don't think that's the way in which a modernisation ought to happen. I think the political sphere ought to be left to Parliament and the, and the politicians and the constitutional monarchical sphere more clearly into the monarchy. It's simply too fraught because where do you draw the line otherwise? Yeah, so as you say, the Queen managed to very successfully keep her views, her politics, if you like, separate, uh, except for one very notable occasion, one that you are very familiar with and have written extensively about. Yeah, look, there were, you know, I'd actually say there were two or three occasions where her usual extremely careful apolitical stance um, was perhaps drawn into question. But the one that relates to us specifically, of course, is the extensive correspondence between herself through her uh, private secretary and Sir John Kerr, our Governor-General, in the months leading up to the dismissal of the Whitlam government. Um, many people, myself included, were extremely surprised, uh, if not disappointed, to see that the Queen had engaged in, again, extremely uh, political matters in, in terms of the power of the Governor-General to dismiss the government, the possibility of the dismissal, which was raised by Kerr 
you know, two months before he actually did so. And instead of what might have been appropriate to direct him to speak to the Prime Minister, the elected head of government, uh, about those matters, instead, in secret, um, had a range of discussions over the ensuing weeks prior to the dismissal. So it is something that has certainly been a great surprise and I think very concerning. And it's a rare intervention into matters that ought not to have been engaged in by the Queen and for that matter Prince Charles because Prince Charles was in fact the first port of call for Sir John Kerr in raising the prospect of dismissing the government in September, as early as September 1975 and it was Charles who then relayed that conversation back to the Queen. So the letters were astonishing and again they had been kept secret for decades and I think it does point to one of the concerns about secrecy that means we actually don't know what powers are being exercised behind the scenes. That's Monash University political scientist Jenny Hocking and author of The Palace Letters. When Queen Elizabeth ascended the throne in 1952, the once vast and powerful British Empire was already waning. In London, the flags of the new Indian Union flutter over the headquarters of India and Pakistan. An era has ended, a new epoch begins. A subcontinent larger than the whole of Europe becomes two self-governing dominions within the British Commonwealth of Nations. After less than a century under the British crown, India's most crucial hour has struck. But at the start of her reign, Great Britain still claimed more than 70 overseas territories under the Union Jack. Today, it counts just 14, with a collective population of 250,000 people. Now, Australia and 55 other independent nations, most of them once ruled by the British Crown, are part of the Commonwealth. And it's this Commonwealth where the Queen placed a great deal of attention and pride. It seems to me that now, in the second decade of the 21st century, what we share through being members of the Commonwealth is more important and worthy of protection than perhaps at any other time in the Commonwealth's existence. We are guardians of a precious flame, and it is our duty not only to keep it burning brightly, but to keep it replenished for the decades ahead. Maya Jasanov is a professor of history at Harvard University and author of several books on the British Empire. Clearly, one has to begin by acknowledging the incredible longevity of this person in so many of our lives. The vast majority of people in the world today have never known another monarch. And she has represented for many, many people around the world a picture of stability and of duty and public service, which I think are rightly being mourned. I find it notable myself to think about those qualities in her at a time that in the world, in the UK and other nations, feels exceptionally unstable. And for those reasons all the more, I think her departure from this world will strike many, many people very, very strongly. And we saw that devotion to public service right up to this week, didn't we? We really did. It's quite incredible to me, really, that her final public act was to see in her 15th prime minister on Tuesday. Her first one, of course, was Winston Churchill. And, you know, he is a figure that we understand to have belonged to another era. But now here she is, having just a couple of days ago, 
seen Boris Johnson out, Liz Truss in, Boris Johnson, a leader who was removed by his own party, partly because he was deemed to lack some of the same sense of kind of duty and, and, and rectitude that the Queen so embodied. So it is a really remarkable moment and, and one that is really at the center, too, of the role of the constitutional monarch, which the Queen took very, very seriously. Seventy years on the throne during a period of, of a rapidly changing world. And as you say, she really was one of the very few constants through all of that. How would you describe the way Queen Elizabeth II played that role for Britain and the world through war and peace, through good times and bad? I think I would want to distinguish here between the individual and the institution. I mean, one of the amazing things, of course, about monarchy is that it's an institution that goes on no matter what individual is occupying it. And we see that, of course, with the instant accession, as it were, of of King Charles III. I think that it's striking how the Queen in her later decades, I think, came to be increasingly beloved. This is the moment... This is the moment when London, when the UK, when the Commonwealth says thank you to Her Majesty, who is out on the balcony of Buckingham Palace. You have met us and talked with us. You laugh and cry with us. And most importantly, you have been there for us for these 70 years. You pledged to serve your whole life you continue to deliver. That is why we are here. And that is actually a trajectory that can be seen in other very long-lived monarchs in British history, notably George III and Queen Victoria, both of whom actually experienced a certain amount of resistance earlier in their reign from their own subjects. But as they became older and older, were more and more loved as, Mm. I think, icons of that stability. So the same is true of Queen Elizabeth. I think that, you know, as historians and, and people sort of moving into the 21st century, we might do well, though, to reflect on the extent to which, you know, our affection for an individual um, might be detached from a sense of what the institution represents, which in her case, you know, she, she stepped into an institution in the 1950s, which represented something really very different from what it might represent going forward in the 21st century. Well, indeed, when she became queen, the British Empire spanned the globe. Can you give us a sense, or at least a reminder perhaps, of just how much has changed for the British Empire since then? Well, for one thing, there is no British Empire anymore. So that has changed right away. (laughs) When the Queen was born, something on the order of one in five people in the world was a subject of the monarch of Great Britain. It's incredible just to think about the scale of this entity. Of course, in Australia, you're well aware of it. And By the time she came to the throne, it was already clear that the empire was going to be, if nothing else, reduced. India and Pakistan, of course, had earned their independence five years before she became queen. I was struck by a comment made on the BBC earlier today that when she became queen, there was Mao Zedong, Joseph Stalin, Harry Truman occupying the offices of the USSR, China, and, and the US. And that was cited as a sense of like how different everything is now. Well, one could just as well say that the Queen of England was the Queen of a British Empire that no longer exists. And uh, it was during her reign that dozens of today's nation states earned their independence. When she came to the throne, a majority of 
nation, what are now nations in the world were colonies. And today we live in a world of nearly 200 nation states. It's just a radical transformation. How do you think this queen personally navigated such a dramatic shift? She herself, from what I can tell, uh, was clearly very committed to the idea of peaceful continuity, of trying to make a commonwealth that stood for what one can assume she took to be the values of the uh, of the British, of the British Empire, namely a commitment to the rule of law, to constitutionalism, and so on. I have no reason to think she believed anything other than that and sought to extend that. One point one might make is that she was uh, very, you know, in, to the extent that any monarch can express political views, she was clearly very concerned about the apartheid uh, regime in South Africa, for instance. That said, I mean, you know, the, the Commonwealth was a vehicle for the maintenance of British power and influence in a world that was in many corners expressing a desire to be rid of empire. And I think that the persistence of efforts to retain, you know, maintain British superiority, British authority, British economic power, British geopolitical uh, significance, you know, is is definitely something that we can see in the Commonwealth and the Queen's devotion to that is indicative of various efforts by the British to sort of stay relevant, stay important, stay powerful, uh, again, in a world that in which many countries and many people may may want something quite different. Yeah, I guess another way to look at that would be that it would have been very hard for the Queen and and, and indeed the, the throne more generally to rapidly cut those ties um, and, and sort of never be seen of again um, because it could have looked spiteful to not show up to places where there was still, in some quarters at least, a, a good deal of affection for the Queen. Absolutely. And, you know, I don't want to discount the degree of global mourning for this figure who, again, in her personal life, clearly committed herself to a kind of public service that was widely lauded and and earned her a great deal of love. I think what's one of the things that I'm struck by as an American, where we don't have a distinction between a head of government and a head of state, Mm. is the value, perhaps, of having such a distinction. The Queen, as a head of state, but not a head of government, was able to provide a kind of symbolic, apparently apolitical presence that was very unifying for people. And again, you know, we're in a moment now when many countries, my own included, are experiencing enormous disunity and, you know, that she could be that kind of outside person swooping in, providing a little bit of glamour, a little bit of, you know, sort of fun, whatever it was, you know, I think serves a function in political societies. So the era of King Charles III has now begun. What do you think is the role of of the modern Commonwealth going forward and, and his place in it? You know, this is actually going to be one of the big questions, I think, is what does he make of it, particularly in the era of Brexit, which I think for some Brexiteers was presented as an effort to to revivify ties with the Commonwealth. Whether other nations within the Commonwealth want those ties to be strengthened is, is another story. I do imagine that we will see more nations following the example of uh, Barbados and declaring themselves republics. I also, I suppose, would put in a word for the value of, you know, dare I say, the, the, the rule of law, uh, some sort of 
I suppose, democrat. I mean, it's funny to speak of democracy in relation to the monarchy, but some sort of respect for, um, you know, public opinion, free speech, all those kinds of things in a time when we're seeing, of course, authoritarianism very much in play uh, with Russia, uh, the rise of China, uh, and fears about the toppling, really, of democracy and, and the rise of populism in, in, in Western Europe and the United States. So, you know, I, I think that there could be room for King Charles III to sort of re-articulate certain principles, for example, commitments to human rights and so on that the Commonwealth has long been associated with. But, you know, it's hard not to consider that it's an entity whose relevance always a little bit uncertain, is at risk of being lost entirely. Maya Jasanov, a professor of history at Harvard University and author of several books on the British Empire. Well, that's this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to This Week, which is produced by Madeline Jenner, Nell Whitehead, Isabel Masali, Will Ockenden, and me, David Lipson. Have a good weekend. <laughs>